Hello and welcome to the Dream Swarm podcast. This is your home for supernatural film, stories and art. I'm your host, magic realist filmmaker Andy Mark Simpson. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Hello everyone, welcome to the next episode of the Dream Swarm podcast. I'm really pleased today to be joined by Sean Esther Powell, who is the host of the Celtic Myths and Legends podcast. Uh, Sean, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for, you know, getting my name right. <laughs> it's not, no, don't always get it right the first time, people. I've had Cyan, I've had John once. John was fun. <laughs> yeah, it's good to, well, to learn these names that seem so exotic, but are kind of very traditional names in, in this country as well. That's it. So, yeah, Sean, welcome to the show. Would you be able to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, everyone. I'm Sean. I'm the host of the Celtic Myths and Legends podcast, which I have been doing sort of on and off since December 2017. I'm not very prolific. I think I've only managed about 24 episodes in all that time. But it's something that I do love doing and will continue to to do for a while. So you're the host of the Celtic Myths and Legends podcast. What do we mean in a sense by the Celtic myths and legends what areas do you cover what are the the Celtic areas so Celtic is a bit of a tangled up web of a term anyway and I know that it confuses a lot of people but the way I'm using it for my podcast is the kind of six official Celtic nations which are Scotland, Ireland, Isle of Man, Cornwall, Wales and Brittany. Now all of those places are called Celtic nation because they still have an existing Celtic language but there's lots of other places in the world including Galicia and Asturias and Spain and also Cumbria in England which have a lot of kind of Celtic history as well but wouldn't be considered maybe wouldn't be considered Celtic nations today. Well could you tell us about the podcast what kind of things do you look at uh, in there folklore podcast based on those So each episode I focus on one of the six Celtic nations. I started with Cornwall because I'm Cornish and my second one was in was Wales because I'm half Welsh and then it just goes on from there and I try to link up the stories with similar stories from the other Celtic nations and from other places around the world but I try to kind of focus on one of the Celtic nations per episode and I've covered folklore I've covered medieval literature I've covered kind of bigger mythological stories and then smaller local bits of folklore I'm trying to make it as broad as I possibly can so I can make episodes for as as long as possible and not exhaust myself eventually (laughs) I get what you're saying there because from your episodes you'll focus on a particular feature like Yang Ganti Tan which was a a Breton figure but then in doing that you you had as you say comparisons with other figures in Ireland whether the West Shatter Lanterns but also in America as well and how this folklore kind of goes to Appalachia and and other areas of America so you kind of that particular Celtic figure in Brittany was then like a prism to then explore similar things from elsewhere and from around the world. I think, yeah, that's why I love folklore so much in some ways, is that, you know, 
in my opinion, folklore can bring people together more than kind of keep us apart because you can find the same archetypes and the same types of stories across the world or depending on, you know, geological factors. So all places that might have the same kind of weather system or all places with a body of water will have these similar stories. And then, of course, you've got the whole concept of the hero's journey, which is completely based on the fact that so many cultures around the world have this archetype of a hero on a quest and meeting all sorts of interesting people so for me folklore is an interesting tool in a lot of ways I like it because it shows that you know human beings are more similar than different and I also think it's really cool that it holds up a mirror to people and it tells you what people believe in what people are frightened of what people love what people are angry about so I think it's a really interesting tool to study people as well. As you say, maybe what people are frightened about. So it's it's tools for safety and survival and it's ways of, and, and that's kind of one of the kind of anthropological uses of folklore, I suppose, but also the storytelling of, of what society's like and this kind of need to, to share stories together. And as you say, looking at, you mentioned the hero's journey, so you've got like Campbell and, and Carl Jung and things looking at these archetypes and these kind of subconscious of humanity that we all seem to share in some way. Yeah, that's it. I mean, there are universal themes that all human beings are going to bind us all together, you know, fear, love, all sorts of other things. And you can find those woven into folklore. And as you say, some folklore is just survival tips. It's <laughs> how you kind of survive in this hostile world around you. So some of the survival tips are hilarious, like chuck rice at a vampire and it will count all the rice grains and that will apparently save you. But some of it's actually genuinely good life advice, like don't walk alone in like the dark in woods because you're probably going to like fall in a bog or you know get yourself really hurt and then some of it is just meant to entertain or meant to spook or is a explanation for some kind of geological factor that people just couldn't explain before so you've got chunks of granite rock all over the moors in Cornwall of course they're from giants chucking them at each other of course they are it's just like the logical way of viewing it but that's what I'm yeah another reason why I'm fascinated with folklore is that it just has so many uses and we tell stories for so many different reasons do you have a favorite piece of folklore see okay I am not the right person to ask for this because obviously I just love all bits of folklore but I love the banshee I have to admit, I love the Banshee. I've been doing this silly like character on and off for a while of my depressed Welsh Banshee who's lost her scream. So she needs to go to a community support group for screamless hags. So there's something about the Banshee that just keeps, it's like a magnet to me. It keeps bringing me in. And I think because you see the Banshee as a character that pops up in fantasy and pop culture quite often. It's this kind of frightening, evil, murderous, hag creature but if you look at the folklore it's all about grief and mourning and you know mourning death and I just think it's really interesting difference between what you see in pop culture and actually when you read the folklore and I kind of think the Banshee's a more sympathetic character but of course I also love Cornish Piskies <laughs> always and forever. What got you into folklore in the first place? You've, you've obviously like soaked up a lot of it but was there a certain trigger that got you into it or is it possible to pinpoint where you got started on it? 
I can't pinpoint exactly, but I think I was always doomed to be a nerd. My dad's really into fantasy and science fiction. My mum really likes that stuff as well. So growing up, it was always, you know, watching Lord of the Rings and my dad would read The Hobbit to me as a bedtime story. So I grew up with fantasy and loving fantasy. And then the kind of, I went through a very embarrassing stage. I'm going to out myself on your podcast. A very embarrassing stage of thinking that I must be an elf. I must be an elf or some creature from the other world. And one day I'm going to stumble upon the correct portal in the woods and obviously become like a princess of like this elven realm. Um, it didn't happen. I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of waiting for it. It didn't happen. But suffice to say, I always, <laughs> I always wanted a bit of enchantment and a bit of magic in my life. And I've always loved the outdoors. So it's living in a place like Cornwall, it's kind of easy to enchant that landscape as well. So there's a lot of different factors that went into the reason for why I'm interested in folklore. Uh, I couldn't tell you exactly when it happened, but it always has seemed to be part of my life, even if it wasn't a conscious thing. Like I don't think my parents really told me many folk tales I always had books on fairies or books on all sorts of weird folklore and mythological things so I I was always doomed to be a bit of a nerd in that way. (laughs) You mentioned some of the difference between pop culture representations of folklore figures in, in a fantasy novel or a film compared to how they're spoken about in everyday use or in, in folklore use. But and you also mentioned that in the landscape, you, it's, you said it's very easy to be enchanted with folklore in that landscape. And I, I understand that vibe as well. I'm from a very, well, I'm from the opposite end of the country, but it's a, a <laughs> similar feel in some ways in Northumberland where it's such a barren landscape and so many folklores, like every rock's got a story to it and every hill's got certain creatures that live on it. And, and it's, it's an interesting way of whether you, you believe in it or not. It's a nice way to, as you're walking around, just tell a little story about that rock. Um, and it just brings the landscape to life a little bit. Would you tell us a little bit about Cornwall? For, for listeners who aren't as familiar, and I'm going to say this myself as well, I've, it's the only county in England that I've never been to, uh, shamefully. So could you tell us a little bit about what it's like, kind of the landscape, but then also the, the culture, the language? Give us a bit of an insight into Cornish culture. Why is it so celebrated? Cornwall is an interesting one because we have quite a complicated relationship in some ways to the rest of England in that Cornwall is part of England geographically, politically, but we also are a Celtic nation. We've got a Celtic language, Cornish or Karnawek, and it's a language that a lot of people said went completely extinct and then it's been brought back. But I know a lot of Cornish speakers and a lot of people with kind of parents and grandparents who are Cornish speakers so I don't know if it really was as extinct as as we say but Cornwall is a sea peninsula right at the bottom of the UK so it's not an easy place to travel around we're quite gothic I think so Cornwall today it's kind of portrayed as being like a a tourist hotspot as being English or British equivalent to like Barbados or what have you and Cornwall does have beautiful beaches it does have the fairest climate I think in the UK but to me Cornwall's actually quite gothic we're jutting out into the Atlantic we've got chunks of granite rocks strewn everywhere we're an incredibly minerally rich 
part of the world. So mining and industry are integral to Cornish history and identity. And mining was happening here hundreds of years before it was happening in other places, just because we have a huge granite rock mass underneath us called the Cornubian Batholith. So we just have so many stuff that we want to dig out the ground so we've spent a lot of time doing it but I say that Cornwall has a complicated relationship to England because I suppose if you go back far enough the Celts the Celtic people who were speaking a Britonic language which Welsh is a Britonic language Cornish Breton in Brittany but also Cumbric so Cumbric there's scraps of it that still exist in obviously the old Cumbric counting systems but it doesn't exist as a sort of complete full language anymore. But that was a Britonic language. And Cumbria was once a Britonic kingdom, much like Wales and Cornwall. So the Celts were kind of pushed sideways into Wales. And I said the Britonic Celts, they were pushed sideways into Wales and down into Cornwall. And because Cornwall's so geographically hard to travel around, not a lot of people have tried to bother with us to be honest with you there's we've got roman archaeology but we don't have a lot of evidence of roman occupation in cornwall you know we've got some archaeology to say that we were trading with the romans but not a lot to say that the romans really tried to bother coming down here and taking over things i think a lot of people have looked at looked at cornwall and just gone oh we can't be bothered with that the people are stubborn the lands you know rocky we can't be bothered with that so today cornwall is an interesting place in that it is part of England and there's a lot of parts of the culture that are commercialized and they have been for a while you know turning piskies into like little charm bracelets and stuff I don't mind that I'm fine with that but we also are trying to cling on to a bit of regional culture and heritage that is distinct and is Cornish so the language and there's a lot of efforts to promote the language Cornish as a minority was actually recognized in 2014 so believe it or not Cornish is a recognized national minority under the the European framework for the protection of national minorities or something else like that so Cornish is a valid identity and you'll find a lot of people that will call themselves Cornish and not English so we're a very interesting place socially politically geographically clinging on jutting out into the Atlantic and I suppose hoping for the best so I don't know how if I've explained that or confused you even further but that's my little roundabout explanation of Cornwall. No that's really useful something that always fascinates me is uh, minority languages and different histories of different cultures and how you know even in a place like England the the, the amount of diverse counties in England and how their histories still are reflected so Cornwall from 1500 years ago that matters still because it still comes through in today in the culture and the language that kind of stuff really fascinates me you mentioned the Brythonic languages uh, Brythonic Celts and how through Roman occupation and and through uh, Saxon occupation that kind of moved westwards then into Wales and into Cornwall. So are there many similarities between Welsh and Cornish folklore and language and culture? Yeah, there's plenty. It's certainly in language. There's a lot of similarities in language. For so for example, one to ten in Welsh is one to ten in Cornish is onendal tre pedwar pimp quech safe eif now deg 
I think I've probably mixed up. I'm very bad at mixing up Cornish and Welsh because it's so similar. So you can see a lot of that in the language. But in terms of the culture and history and folklore, there are certainly lots of similarities. So one example would be the Coblenai, which is the Welsh mining goblin and the Cornish knocker, which are the piskies that live down the mines. But you can also find that folklore in Germany with kobolds and uh, when Cornish and Welsh miners left en masse for America and other places of the world like Australia, they took their folklore with them. So you have the American Tommy knocker. So there are some similarities between Wales and Cornwall that I think do exist because they're both sort of Britonic Celtic nations who would have undoubtedly traded with one another. If you look on a map, you know, Brittany, Cornwall, Wales, Ireland, it's quite, it would have been quite easy to get to all of them um, just going straight up. But there are also some similarities, I think, that are not accidental, but just based on the geography and the industry of Cornwall and Wales. So because mining is integral to both Wales and Cornwall, you get a lot of similarities culturally for that reason. So I think there's a lot of similarities between Wales and Cornwall because they're Celtic nations, but I also think there's a lot of similarities for other reasons. That's the whole reason I decided to do my master's in Celtic studies, which is a bit bonkers, but because I'm Cornish and Welsh, my father's Welsh, all my family are from Wales. I spent a lot of time growing up in Wales and would move back in a heartbeat. So I love Wales to bits, but I always traced all of these similarities between the two places. And I remember like being on the phone to my prospective lecturer for the Celtic Studies Masters. And she was like, why do you want to do it? And I was like, oh, I just want to trace the similarities between Wales and Cornwall. Of course, when it got down to writing that as my dissertation, she was like, you can't, that's PhD. That's too much. You, you, you would that you would fit that into a PhD, not a 10K master's thesis. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities between the two, but I do, I'm sceptical sometimes of how much that's because they're both Celtic nations or, you know, for other reasons. Yeah, like you said earlier on about how you get similar pieces of folklore because of cultures, but also because of the, the weather being similar in the two places or the landscape or where you get a body of water or where you get snow, you, you mm. get similar kind of figures. So I guess where you get finds, you are going to get certain bits of superstition and folklore around mines and, and, and these similar things kind of will come up no matter what the, the cultural origins of, of those are. Yeah, definitely. So doing the Celtic Studies Masters isn't, I, I don't want to keep harping on about that, but it's almost made me more wary of a lot of the stuff out there about Celtic and about Celt and that sort of umbrella term and it's made me question a lot of things as well but being Cornish and Welsh I can't help but obviously see that there's loads of similarities between the two for whatever reason. Yeah the, I mean the word Celtic it is well it means different things to different people and it, mm -hmm. you know, so in an academic sense you'll be studying it you'll be examining that quite quite carefully different people if they try and sell stuff won't examine it quite so carefully and will commercialize something as celtic mm -hmm. and then yeah the different parts of europe and things i mean if we could do a whole thing just examining that but um <laughs> but but i think it you know it, it is still useful and I, I do think it's also i know from from people i follow on on facebook and twitter and and, and look at people don't use it as an exclusionary term either like they'll they'll use it's something that's used to celebrate certain cultures and, and to bring you know Scotland and Ireland and, and Wales and Cornwall and Brittany together 
and the other man, but isn't you know done as a way of um, excluding other people, or isn't done as a way of belittling other people who aren't from those countries as well, you know. And I know your podcast the same from you know every episode, you it always comes across as a very welcoming kind of podcast. I think it, like as you say, you you expand to bring those similarities from other areas as well. Thank you. Yeah, I'm always trying to get that across because to me, there's nothing useful in coveting history or heritage or folklore or keeping it to yourself or only say oh only this group of people are, are, are allowed to be interested in this I think that's shooting yourself in the foot surely if you're interested in promoting and advocating for an area and its language and its history and its culture you sort of want as many people as possible to be interested in it so Celtic as you say it can be really useful and it can be useful as like a vehicle for kind of um, bringing these places together and also kind of legitimizing these bits of cultural heritage and getting other people interested in them so you have like you know festivals around Celtic song and dance and storytelling Um, and I love all that stuff I think in my mind the best version of it is when it is welcoming and when it is accessible to all people of course you'll have nutters wherever you go and whatever you do so there will be some people that will be like I'm a descendant from an old Welsh king and I'm 100% DNA Celtic and all this nonsense that's a little bit rubbish but for me the best usage of it is using it as a vehicle to promote minority culture and heritage in a way that it should be interesting to all people but like you said there's all sorts of ways to commercialize Celtic and to sell it Uh, and don't get me started on Celtic tree zodiacs that's no It does serve a, a valuable function as well in, like you say, preserving a lot of history. And I know, you know, languages change, people move and, and, and migrate, and, and that's all a good a good thing. But it's a shame when cultures get lost. So it's good that, you know, like having festivals and dances. And I know there was a Celtic film festival for a while. I don't know if that's still going. Yeah, just an event that celebrates cultures and keeps the language going and so I think having it you know celebrating as Celtic is you know just it is a, it can still be a useful term to bring those things together and, and to get people to recognize those yeah and and Cornwall's quite interesting at the moment because we're kind of really on on the cusp of something there's so many and this is not just a Cornish problem this is a problem in all beautiful rural areas of the UK but there's so many second homes in Cornwall and so many holiday lets and a lot of people feel like heritage and culture and language are really being erased and eroded now more than ever so there is a real movement of people that are really trying to advocate Cornwall advocate for Cornwall as a place of culture as a place for interesting unique history and language so sometimes you do feel like you're fighting for Cornwall to be recognized in that way when it is kind of primarily seen as a bit of a tourist hotspot but that happens in all areas of the UK that are beautiful and rural Uh, and so sometimes it feels like you know you shouldn't be complaining because you get to live by the beach or when people complain about it in um, like the Lake District or anything like that it's like you shouldn't complain about living there because look at the views but it's not always an easy thing to live in a place that is going through such a cultural kind of turmoil in a way because you have a lot of people that won't see Cornish identity and history and language as real that completely dismiss it like it's silly it's nonsense but then of course you'll get some people 
that are like really trying to kind of promote and advocate for it and you get a few people that will take it too far and you know you've got to be 12 generations Cornish to be Cornish which again is shooting yourself in the foot really but yeah it's an interesting time to be in Cornwall because I think tensions are very very high for a number of reasons. Yeah there's a great film uh, you've probably seen it Bait the Mark Jenkins film which deals with some of that kind of second homes and, and the effects on kind of fishing communities and I thought that was a fantastic film. What is next for you then Sean? What, what's happening with the podcast? I know you do videos and things so what else are you up to at the moment? I'm not very prolific with my podcast but it is something I love and I do want to continue doing it. So um, I was very lucky to be shortlisted and to be commissioned as part of BBC's new creative so I created a little short audio piece and interesting you mentioned bait because ed Rowe from bait is one of the voices in my little audio piece i don't know when that's going to be uploaded i hope that will be uploaded soon but that deals it's sort of like alan partridge and piskies <laughs> like a local radio station based in a world where mermaids giants and piskies exist so piskies are really pissed off really that they're you've got second stone owners coming down to cornwall and buying up all the holiday stones and pushing the piskies further and further into town centres. So it's kind of very topical and very relevant today. So I sort of, I want them to upload it, but I don't know when that'll happen. But in terms of my podcast, I am still planning on uploading to it. Um, My next one is going to be focused on Ireland, but uh, also looking at headless creatures and like headless horsemen and that sort of thing in other Celtic nations and in other parts of the world. So that should be quite an interesting episode. And I'm also always making silly stuff on TikTok and Twitter. So how can people follow you? What's the best way to keep in touch with what you're up to? So you can follow the Celtic Myths and Legends podcast anywhere that you can get podcasts. I think I have badgered them to you know, upload my podcast. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Deezer, Podbean, all those lovely places. I'm Celtic underscore Sean on Instagram and TikTok. So my TikTok is mostly just dog walks around Cornwall at this point. So if anyone's interested in that, and you can follow me on Twitter at Sean Esther, where I'm always going off about something one or another. Yes, that people do uh, definitely li- listen to Celtic Myths and Legends podcast. There's some great stories on there, great insight into parts of Britain, parts of the world that aren't kind of recognised. I, I don't think don't get the recognition they deserve, especially in the, the kind of cultures there that are not just ancient cultures, but are also living, breathing languages. And plays are written in those languages, films are made in them. Do the same, you know, Irish, Scots, Gaelic, Scots, Welsh. Cornish like these these are living languages so it's great to bring some of that culture to us Sean so I would suggest people do follow that podcast and keep in touch with what Sean is up to Sean thanks very much for coming on the show thanks for having me (laughs) thank you for joining us for this episode of the dream swarm podcast I've been your host Andy Mark Simpson we hope you'll join us for the next one Remember, you can subscribe to stay in touch with future episodes and follow us at the website www.dreamsform.org or follow on Twitter and Instagram at Dreamsform. And we look forward to joining you for more supernatural film stories and art. In the meantime, be creative, be curious, be kind. We'll see you soon.